Okay, okay. Well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And I have a fantabulous, wonderful, amazing, I don't know, I keep coming up with all sorts of new words to describe my my guests. But today I have a guest who I've actually known for quite some time. And I was reminding her that one of the times that I met her, it was actually when she was getting an award called the Voice Awards from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And it was really funny because what I had said about her in my kind of introduction of her at that time is, I want to grow up and be Laverne Miller. So here we are with Laverne Miller. So Laverne, why don't you introduce yourself since I don't do like bio intros? Oh, wow. Oh, first of all, Karis, thanks very much for your kind words. I, I do remember uh, meeting you back in, uh, you know, during the Voice Awards. And uh, you, you, thank you very much. I, uh, you know, I think part of uh, what gives me joy and um, being thankful at this stage in my life is really appreciating the impact that I may have had on uh, one of, someone else's life in a more positive way. So just a little bit about myself. I'm Laverne Miller. I lifelong uh, New York resident. I'm an attorney. And over the years, uh, what I've been able to do is to utilize skills that I've learned as an attorney um, to work in various roles, mainly focusing on the uh, employment of uh, people with lived experience across you know, a wide range of settings, um, ranging from peers working in um, outpatient programs to peer-run programs and in criminal justice settings. And so I've been doing this kind of work uh, for uh, you know close to 25 years. You know, I've also uh, had a role in helping to start several kinds of uh, organizations and programs, and I find I get a great deal of satisfaction over that kind of work. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, Karis. Awesome. Yeah, 25 years. That's like no joke. And I think, did you start the first, and I'm going to use this in air quotes that people can't see, forensic peer specialist program? I yeah, I did, Karis, and it's it's it's. Uh, I was just thinking about that the other evening when I was thinking back at you know how much things have changed in terms of the employment of people with lived experience. Absolutely, I, and it's uh, been since uh, I think it was about two thousand. We yeah. we looked around and we're trying to figure out like how do we include peers with lived experience both in both the behavioral health system and the criminal justice system in working uh, in um, different settings and systems of care. And so, yes, Howie the Harp was the first uh, nationally uh, known um, forensic peer specialist training program. And now basically every state really has a program where they're training people with living experience in the behavioral health system and criminal justice to work as peers. And so I'm really proud. That's probably the proudest, the thing that I'm most proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times um, when we're doing our advocacy as consumers and or peers lived experience, Sometimes I think people think we are not talking about people who are currently or formerly criminal justice involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because of that work that you started, there became this intention to be able to use that lived experience of criminal justice involvement and mental health and or substance use conditions to help other people who were in similar conditions. And I still think there are a lot of states that don't maximize or a lot of localities if we want to go from state to local that are not maximizing peers, especially for those that are in, you know, criminal justice settings or um, even in quote unquote locked hospitals, since there still are hospitals with locked units. I I really don't think we use um, peers enough in those settings, but work to be done and why we have these conversations. 
So lots of work to be done. Yeah. And some of the other things that we were talking about, especially, um, and I think back to when I was running a peer run organization and when we spun off to be our own 501c3, it was hard to um, help the workforce that I was working with, let alone when I'm talking to people nationally about, well, you're doing the work now, but what happens when you retire or what happens when you get older or what, ha- like you, you need to build up your savings for that. Or I'll talk to my father about something happens to you and then um, you leave your estate to me. But what if I'm disabled at that point? What happens? Like, and those are the kind of things that we have to think about in our future. So how have you been helping people think about that? Uh, yeah, that's a great conversation to have, Karis. I mean, I think one of the things that we as a community uh, probably don't have been unable to or unwilling really to address um, is to really look at what I call broadly kind of estate planning and really thinking about what happens when you die. And I, I've often asked myself, well, why is it difficult for us to, our community, to have those conversations about what we want uh, to happen to our assets, whether it's real property, whether it's stocks and bonds, whether it's personal property like jewelry. Why is it so difficult um, for us to have those conversations? And I think it comes from a few different places. I I think as human beings, most of us have a difficult time thinking about, well, what will happen when I'm not here? And to be very, and to be able to be both deliberate and intentional about planning for what you'd like to happen after you're no longer here. I think the other thing is, is that folks just, it's one of those things where you need to take time out in order to really think deeply about uh, what you would like to happen to your assets when you're no longer here. And I think the third thing is just no one, it's something that people don't talk about in general, you know, that kind of discussion. So in my work, I really focused on how important it really is to do um, estate planning. I think with the other thing, uh, probably the most prominent uh, thing is that people don't really think they have assets. People think of wills and things like that are for rich people. Mm. You know, they've got to have a lot of money or a lot of, you know, a lot of jewelry or a whole bunch of stocks and bonds and everything in order to write a will or to get assistance in um, writing a will. And Karis, that's just not true. Uh, I ask people, anytime you have personal property, maybe that ring that you got when you were uh, graduated from high school or that, you know, book or uh, a car that you own or stocks or bonds that you you may be in possession of or even or real property, a house. That's really important, basically, to really do well, to make to ensure that your your wishes, that you clearly are able to put down your wishes on pen and paper and that after you're gone, that those wishes will be carried, carried out in a the way you would like them to. Because interestingly enough, when you don't do that, when you don't have a will, and you die with what we call, this is a legal term, intestate, you have no, virtually no control over what happens to your assets. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of our need to empower ourselves, as well as the people that we're working with, that really doing estate planning is just really critical. Wow. You know, it's really interesting because as you're talking about this, yeah, it's a bit creepy. I'll I'll admit <laughs> You know, I, I remember, you know, years and years and years ago when my mom and dad like sat my brother and I down to talk about the will. I think I ran out of the room like, no, I'm not ready. And, uh, you know, and they're like, no, 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 we just want you to run or, you know, go around the house and like put dots on things that you like that you would like to have. Now, my parents did something cool, though, is that um, 
you know, once once I kind of understood what they were talking about and what had happened in the past, very much like what you're saying, my mom remembers her her grandmother and not um there wasn't a will and how people came in and just took stuff out of her grandmother's <laughs> just took stuff out of her grandmother's house. But but after we started dotting things like putting dot dots on things, um, I had put the majority of dots on my mother's artwork. My mother was a painter. And she started actually, she she realized, wait, why do I have to wait until I pass away to give you this stuff? If, if you like this painting, I'll give it to you now, right? Which was kind of, which was kind of cool so that I didn't have to have a mournful feeling about it, but I could kind of enjoy it even while she was alive. So I thought that was kind of one way to address the creepy factor or the scary factor. Absolutely. It really is. Because again, it's, it's really about empowering yourself. Yeah. And ensuring that your your wishes and your desires are followed. If you don't, again, um, by default, it goes to a, a judge or someone, a judge or a, some other uh, legal entity to really decide how to what we call distribute the proceeds from your will. And, and you know, you and I can both agree that it's really the more that we empower ourselves, the better off it is. Um, and it also takes off the weight of, from your family. When you pass, when you die, and uh, you uh, don't have a will, I would say the vast majority of folks that I've worked with, when that happens, there's conflict within the family because no one's, no one know, you, you know, people remember past conversations, maybe that someone had that they were going to leave them this or leave them that, but in terms of really being very specific about what it is, uh, what kind of what we call a bequest is being left to you, is that folks are left to their own devices. So a will really helps. Not to say that folks that there sometimes isn't conflict when there is a will, but it greatly reduces the likelihood that there will be. Right. Or that right. there'll be what we call litigation about a lack of a will. Yeah. And I and I'm thinking, you know, in our in our peer community, I, I also think about like, okay, so everybody knows I have an advocacy Barbie. Well, maybe not everybody, but most people know I have this advocacy Barbie and I have, well, now about 10 or 15 different Barbie dolls, either people give them to me or, you know, I don't really collect them per se, but because people knew I had this thing called an advocacy Barbie, I do have some Barbie dolls. And, and I, you know, know, okay, if I pass away, those could end up in the trash, but I know people who love Barbie dolls, who would love to collect Barbie dolls. So even though it might not have a high monetary value, it has a high meaningful value to, to somebody that, that I might know or a few people that I might know. So, you know, making sure that I write that down that, you know, this person would probably appreciate having, you know, these particular Barbie dolls. So I think there are lots of different ways to think about it, right? You're spot on. It's not just things that have monetary value. It's things that may have emotional or sentimental value to the person. So you're spot on. It doesn't all the time um, have to be a a large sum of money or something else like that. It can be something like the Barbie doll or like, um, you know, other kinds of products or gifts or other kinds of things that you have that you would like to give to someone for someone to have upon your death. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was thinking about RAP plans, like wellness recovery action plans. We, we know how to think about uh, many of us who have been through that process of developing a wellness recovery action plan, know how to think about uh, what we want in, in times of crisis. It would be really interesting if we thought about sort of your RAP for your will. <laughs> You know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but, you know, like, like thinking about just as you have to take the time out and be intentional about writing that rap plan and thinking through it, um, how do you go through this process too? I think you're spot on. And as an attorney, the advice I, I, I give folks that are really thinking about doing well is the following. 
basically to take time out to sit down and really think about your assets, what it is that you have. And then think about, deep, take a deep dive into who you would want to get to what we call leave it to. Mm-hmm. You know, and also take an opportunity, sort of like maybe your mom did earlier, is to have a discussion with that person about, you know, you, you know, I'd like to leave you this and it has this value, you know, it has this type of sentimental value to me or what have you. And to really list those kinds of things so that you get an idea of what kind of assets you really, really have. Yeah. Um, and then the next, next step is to really um, write a will. A lot of times, and I'm not endorsing any law firm or any type of, um, you know, major, uh, major law firm or entity, but it's important to have someone to support you around the writing of a will because a, a will is a legal document. It has meaning. There's terminology that has to be used. There's language that triggers certain roles and responsibilities for whether it's the executive of your state or your administrative in a state. So it's really important to have um, some legal advice around the will after you, uh, as you begin the process of really um, thinking about how you want your assets distributed upon your death. And in finding an attorney, it's, I, I think one of the challenges always is, is that, you know, there's this myth that, uh, you know, I can't afford to get a will done. And, and granted, lawyers, private attorneys are not cheap, so to say. I mean, you could easily end up spending maybe a couple of hundred dollars and getting a will drawn up. But you can find affordable, low-cost uh, legal assistance in having your will drafted. Um, and that can range from an attorney who charges a reasonable fee and or legal or not legal not-for-profit organization, community-based organization that has those services, your local legal services or your local um, bar association or other organizations will be able, if they don't provide those kinds of services in terms of drafting the will, they can make a referral because there's a, there are, is a formality in doing a will. The will is written, it's reviewed, and then you must execute it. You sign it uh, and it's got to be witnessed. That's why it's important to get uh, legal advice when you can. Um, right. There's some, you know, other resources online, you can look at those and at least begin the process of knowing what needs to be in the will. But in terms of the actual drafting of the will, my advice is always to someone is to, to seek out legal assistance. Yeah. And to revisit it too, just like you would revisit your rap plan, like every once in a while, go back and revisit it and adjust as needed. So I think that's important too. Oh, absolutely. Change. You may have acquired other assets that, you know, that you didn't have when you went uh, to the will, you may want to change, change who your beneficiary is for a uh, particular um, asset. So you're absolutely right that you, you you can and probably should revisit it a few times. Yeah. So there are other ways too that we can be proactive about thinking about our, our future. And, and, and part of that is around, um, you know, if we're employed in, in organizations, whether it be a peer-run organization or any other type of community-based organization or government organization, like how do we think about things? Like this was a really tough one to get people to think about beyond like, mm-hmm. like life insurance, um, long-term disability, 401ks, <laughs> like, wait, you're going to take money out, but no, I want my money. I want my money now. I don't want to save it for later. So how how is that something that we also need to think about when we start? Um, many of us come off a of disability and go into work. And so I think that's why there's this, you're seeing money that you hadn't seen before and you want to take it all now because you didn't have it. So how do we, how do we like understand the power of these um, benefits for the future? 
first of all, you know, most employers, their benefits, employee benefits. And I would say many employee, from my experience in providing technical assistance and support to peers or peers who are working in, in organizations or organizations is that peers, people with good experience often don't take advantage of the full array of employer provided services, uh, whether it's the employee assistance program, whether it's something like long-term disability plan that kicks in after you've been out uh, with an a qualifying illness for a certain period of time, that we often don't take advantage of those. Or as you said, Karis, really looking at your 401k or your uh, 403b, those are, say, you know, um, investment accounts, one for not-for-profit, the other one for profit, really thinking about, take advantage of those. And I think you're spot on about one of the reasons being that people want, you know, uh, the cash in hand. I, my mom used to always say, a, a penny wise, a pound foolish. You think you're saving money on one end by not having deductions uh, in your uh, weekly or biweekly or monthly paycheck. But these benefits are really benefits of, you know, that come with, that are part of your employee, employment package. And often product or the service that you're able to buy into makes a whole lot of sense in terms of your own um, health. For example, long-term disability plans. Most employees uh, provide some combination of, a, you know, short-term disability plan, but uh, with a time limit as to how long you can let, collect the uh, short-term disability. However, some employers, especially now, give you an opportunity to pay for, you know, we call the rider for an additional long-term disability benefit. What that does is, is that in the event, it adds another layer of protection. In the event that you become ill, it allows you basically, you don't have to wait and you're unable to work, to work, is that you're not able, you're not stuck waiting for social security to kick in. Okay. Because if you're not eligible for unemployment insurance under some circumstances, if you, you know, if you're, you, you leave your job voluntarily before because of illness and what have you, and so that those sort of long term that long term disability package really provides you with some relief. Right. Um. The other thing is family medical leave benefits. We often don't take those. You know, if you have a sick family member or a significant other that um is you need to help with, and uh, FMLA is a great benefit. And so we hesitate. Uh, we don't like to take time off. Uh, you think if you if you like me, I think when I first went back to work, I was like, I got to prove I can do this. I get A, you know, so that meant I barely took a sick day. I barely took a vacation. You know what I mean? I had to, at the end of the year, it was like, wow, I got to get rid of all this time. And so I always like to say basically that there are certain, the benefit to employment is being able to enjoy your time off in a meaningful way. And so that really means taking advantage of those kinds of benefits, employee benefits that are available. The other thing is the employee assistance program. Nowadays, many um, mid-level or um, larger organizations have, have, whether the government or for private or not-for-profit, they've got really good employee assistance programs where you can speak to a counselor not only about, let's say, um, mental health issues, but a whole wide range of issues that you can really um, tap into, you know, for free. Um, and so those are those are the kinds of things that I think people really I would like to encourage our community to really be really take advantage of um, because in the long term it makes sense um, you you know and it's a, a part of your employment package and if you're able to take advantage of it financially take advantage of it because you don't know how important it is until you don't have it yeah until you're searching around for it 
Um, and so this is just the way, again, I think you talked about empowerment. This is a way of empowering yourself to, to take advantage of those benefits that exist um, and to make sure you utilize them in order to continue to work, continue to be effective, um, and to take advantage of all those things that are available. Right, right. Yeah, I, I remember when um, I had to go on disability and I had purchased into the long-term disability plan. I think that's what I had done. Mm-hmm. And yet it took a while to get on social security, but but even what they did though is, and again, it might've been during that time and in this state. So I think sometimes maybe, I don't know, that may make a difference, but I was able to, I, I actually got paid more being on long-term disability than I did on SSI or SSDI. I don't remember which one I was on. And I mean, it was a shocker. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so so really, you know, I'll never forget that that's an important thing to do because of that differential, because you're paying into it um, and you're getting it back plus what the- uh, some. Paid into it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and it's, I, I, I mean, the thing to know about um, long-term disability is mostly, you know, in terms, let's say, and again, it's not, we don't only, it's, this is not about just mental illness. This is also about a physical injury, something else that prevents you from um, returning to work. And that, um, you know, can you, can you select what percentage of your salary you'll get um, upon your disability? And it's a much shorter process than Social Security. The only downside is that most the um, there's a mental health sort of carve out of most long term disability programs, and that that basically is generally there. There's a two. I know on my policy there was a two year limitation on being able to collect the long term disability, which but then you did at some point you had to if you still were unable to work you had to transition to um, social security. So that's you know mental most insurance policies uh, long term disability programs. And I haven't figured out why other than, uh, that didn't sound like parody to me. No, I was just going to say that girlfriend, it ain't parody and it's really discrimination. Yeah. Um, and it really treating um, uh, mental health uh, very differently than a physical disability, than a physical disability or injury. Wow. So you're absolutely yeah. right. It's not parody, uh, it's downright, uh, discrimination in many ways, uh, yeah. that we're not able to take advantage of those kinds of, uh, the longevity that, uh, other kinds of, uh, illnesses provide in terms of your long the eligibility for long-term disability. That's why it's so interesting to me that, you know, we say, um, or not when we or whomever out there says, oh, mental, mental health is like any other health condition. The fact of the matter is it's not treated as such. So, so we can say it to sort of reduce the stigma, but the policies don't match that particular kind of sentiment that it's like any other. It's not. If you can't have the same length of time of long-term disability or, if, you know, you can't um, access the number of um, psychotherapy sessions that you need, it's limited for some particular reason, less than what you might need for something else that is not mental health. Well, then, you know, that's not parity and it's not like any other, you know, any other quote unquote illness. So I, I was also, yeah, go ahead. No, absolutely. I think you're spot on. And that's an area for advocacy, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was I was thinking, too, that, you know, when I was running a um, peer-run organization, 
you know, we were part of initially, um, you know, a larger group, everybody, well, you know, it's not anything that anybody doesn't know, so it's fine, but it's Project Return Peer Support Network at one point was a program under MHALA. And then in order to preserve its funding, um, it was recommended by the county that we become our own 501c3. Now, we were working towards that anyway, to be fully independent, become a 501c3, and then contract directly with the county versus going through as a program under another organization. But when you're under a very large organization like MHALA, I think at the time they had a very large budget. We did not at the time, but um, what was really hard for us to figure out was how to provide and and how to help advocate for the staff taking advantage of some of these programs because we were small in numbers as far as FTE, Mm -hmm. even though we had a lot of people, many were on um, stipends at the time, but we wanted to offer things like a 401k. We wanted to have a long and short-term disability. We wanted to have a good health insurance. We wanted to have all these things but as a smaller, uh, you know, nonprofit, um, mm-hmm. first of all, it was hard to figure out how to get it. Luckily, we worked with someone who could help shop around and, and help us think about sort of who who uh, we wanted to, um, you know, engage in to provide these services and, and also to get an EAP, uh, the um, Employment Assistance Program. You know, we, we were able to do it. But it was re- it was hard for us first to to figure out how we were going to finance it. We were able to finance it, and then the other part was convincing the staff to buy into it. I'm really thinking about the peer run organizations and how to help, especially smaller peer run organizations, think about if, if they're not offering these. I don't know what you've seen, um, how they're able to offer an array of services, some of these kind of uh, employee benefits. I don't know what have you seen. I've seen increasingly peer-run organizations are providing the benefits and that the quality of the benefits have really, um, as your budget funding have increased, have, incre- have increased and improved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, small organizations, it may, I, I think I, I'm always a fan of collaborative and cooperative agreements between organizations. Yes. So, you know, one choice may be basically to partner with another larger organization um, on a legal level and to be able to take advantage of um, the cost savings, what we call the economies of scale that exist when the larger organizations actually purchasing, buying the benefit. But increasingly, I've seen that um, based on job opening announcements and everything that folks are, that the benefits are really improving, which is a good thing. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Because I know back in the day, not so much. <laughs> so that, that's really good to hear. And then um, I think as, as peers, maybe one other thing we might be able to think about is exactly what you're talking about is the education component to other peer and peer staff. Also thinking about if, if we don't have the, if we don't have enough knowledge about this stuff to bring somebody in who does. Yeah. I think we bring in experts for, to come in and talk about the number of things. You don't know what you don't know. People have questions, and I think having someone come in and really talk about the benefit, the cost, the long-term uh, benefits, short-term benefits, and also how you access services. Because even though something's available, I know I, I worked on jobs where there was a service available, but I didn't know how to access it, who to call, the, the protocol, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I really would recommend, um, as part of both, you're onboarding an individual employee, but also maybe once a year. In organization, because generally, you know, the different 
what we call products and different uh, change uh, every year. So as we wrap up, what I like to do with folks is ask them to do some wisdom dropping. So um, what piece of wisdom would you like to leave our audience with? The piece of wisdom that I have is basically that it's important to take advantage of all of the the benefits of your employment. We we work hard. Many of us have worked hard and dreamt about going back into the workforce and participating fully. Uh, we wanted to enjoy all the benefits and conditions of employment. And so I really want to encourage folks to take advantage of them, to take advantage to find out what employee benefits are available. And don't look at them like, oh, uh, I don't have time or it may not work for me, but really to look and find out because often the services that are offered there, you know, they're good value. Um, they have benefit. And they also are part of, um, you know, what your employer has to offer. And you should be able to take take advantage of them. And so I really would encourage us. It's sort of like the whole theory about taking vacations. I know the first few years that I went back to work, but what? Plan a vacation? Yeah. I didn't think about it. I was like, you know, and I mean, I was making decent change, but it was just the idea of doing something. I think it broadly, these the things we're talking about, whether it's the will, whether it's taking advantage of the uh, employee, uh, employee, employee benefit package, it's about doing something for ourselves. Yeah. And I think we have to remember, be mindful, be as a, my um, friend um, Kathy Cave always says, we have to be intentional about the, the kinds of decisions that we make uh, around. Again, whether we're talking about a will, you know, uh, whether we're talking about taking advantage of an employee benefit, to be very intentional about it. Don't feel guilty uh, about um, doing those things. They, they're important things, and they can improve, you know, the employee um, the, with the employee benefits. It can, it, it can improve and has the ability to improve your o- overall experience. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with planning for the future. I, I know for me, it was hard to plan for the future because to be honest, I didn't know whether I was going to be here or whether I wanted to be here. But yes. what I've learned that is that it's really uh, important to really plan for the future. A little bit of planning goes a long way. Fantastic. I just love this conversation. You know, parts of it are a bit difficult, yes. But um, again, learning that it's a part of life. It's a part of the conversations we can have. And thank you so, so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your expertise, and doing the work that you do um, on behalf of our consumer and peer community. So thank you so much, Laverne. Thank you so much, Karis. And be well, my sister. Take good care, everyone. It's been a a joy and honor to uh, be on this podcast. Be well. Awesome. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, um, you all know what to do. Like, subscribe, do all that stuff that my producer says I have to say that you're supposed to do. But this is what we both think is most important to do, which is to share. There are people who are who need this information, um, who would benefit from hearing this conversation. So make sure to share the podcast with others. And until then, we'll see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>